0: My name is Donna Walker-Cune, I'm the Director of Community Affairs at the Public Theater. And on behalf of George C. Wolf, I'd like to warmly welcome you to this afternoon's Free at 3. Um, today we're going to have a really wonderful discussion with uh, four fantastic playwrights, and the name of our event is titled "The Plays, The Thing," which is also the name of our season. Uh, so we're really excited to have that uh, this event here today. It will be moderated by Shirley Fishman, who is the dramaturg here at the Public Theater. I know in our flyer we had um, promoted Talani Davis as being present, but she's under the weather. So fortunately, Shirley Fishman has stepped uh, in to cover for her. Also, today's event is in association with Penn Open Book Committee, and we're really delighted to be once again working with them, and we'll continue um, this wonderful relationship. Um, Shirley is going to introduce the panel and, of course, begin the dialogue, but before we get started, I wanted to also bring your attention to the back of your program um, to note that next Sunday, we will also be having a stimulating um, activity with Callaloo, which is a scholarly African-American journal and there'll be readings by several writers, including Susan Laurie Parks, uh, next Sunday. And then in November, our Free at 3 is going to be exploring uh, comparisons between Shakespeare and Cervantes with Teatro Circulo. So we're in for some really interesting dialogues coming up this season. Um, also, please take a look at our season brochure. I'm sure there's something there because the place, the thing. So I'm sure there'll be something you'll find enjoyable, and we're really delighted to have you in Joe's Pub. So now I'd like to present to you Shirley Fishman, our dramaturg, who will moderate today's discussion. Thank
1: you very much. Hi, everybody. I'm so excited to be making my debut in Joe's Pub. <laughs> 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 my first and last. So, this afternoon um, we're going to be talking about um, the landscape of play development. um, In particular, with our playwrights, Chuck Mee, Susan Laurie Parks, Mila Cruz, and Jessica Hagedorn. And what we're going to be talking about is um, how, first of all, their origins in theater, why they're writing plays. Um, what, uh, how, how a play forms, and how an idea forms in the mind of the playwright, how it gets to the page, what happens to it as it, um, as it develops when it finds a home, it finds a theater, what happens uh, as the result of collaborations with producers and uh, with directors. Uh, once the play is staged, what kind of life does it have? Um, And we're also going to talk about what's available for um, playwrights as support systems. Um, By that I mean uh, residencies, grants, commissions, uh, artistic associate relationships at at theaters around the country, Um, and then uh, talk about their relationship to the public and what's happening with their play here. So that's um, what we're going to do. And so I'm going to start off with uh, asking how they came to be in the theater. What was it about theater that said, this is the thing for me? The theater's the thing, and the place the thing. So why don't we start with Chuck? Well, well I, you
2: know, I hear people talk about what why, why, why they're in the theater and their answers are always so different. I think it must be completely random. It's not really like the cause and effect somehow ever. But uh, the thing that I th- think about uh, is uh, I had polio when I was a kid, when I was 15. And uh, up
3: until that moment, I'd never read anything but a comic books. And uh, a high school English teacher of mine brought me uh, a copy of Plato's Symposium when I was in the hospital, which was a very odd thing to give to me. Uh, But I read it, and um, I was immediately uh, completely taken with it because um, I myself was uh, a sort of uh, battlefield of conflicting emotions at that time. And of course, the symposium was in dialogue form. And after that, I always thought in dialogue form. Everything I ever thought about
2: occurs, and think about today, occurs in my mind as a lot of voices, uh, and usually not agreeing other. And then I, uh, the other thing I think of is that I, uh, uh, I wrote for the theater, I'm a very old person, Uh, I wrote for the theater in the early 60s um, and did stuff in places like La Mama and Cafe Chino and those places when they were, I mean when La Mama was the original La Mama. And um, uh, then I got very distracted by anti-Vietnam War activities and uh, spent uh, sort of 15 or 20 years as a political activist, really, and writing about politics and history. And uh, didn't then return to write for the theater until <clears throat> I was taking my two, um, at that time, very young kids. This is like 15 years ago to see a revival of My Fair Lady on Broadway, which is, you know... Anyway, I, I got <laughs> seats in the first row all the way over on one side so that you could see off into the wings and see the stage hands and all the artifice of the theater. It's like completely evident, which I thought would be fun for my kids to see. You know, you could see the actors with their makeup and stuff. And we're sitting there watching. And this guy sitting behind us leaned over into my ear and said, this is the real world. (laughs) And so I turned
3: around to see who he was. And there was no one there.
2: (laughs) And since I have never heard voices either before or since, (laughs) I thought I should pay attention. So I started writing for the theater again.
4: She really encouraged us to um, uh, just do our own thing. Uh, bring exercises to class that were uh, written monologues, great scenes. Uh, not so much to do scenes from plays. Uh, so I started to bring my own scenes to class. And uh, a lot of the students used to come to me after my exercise in class and say, oh, I want to be here on exercise. I I want to you know I like what you're doing and things like that and uh, and so my professor thought at one point she approached me and said she said an acting class she said you know what I don't think you're an actor <laughs> you know, that really uh, she says I really think you're a director or a writer or both uh, and she gave me uh, a play to direct and uh, I started directing. And, uh, and then I directed a play by Irene Fornes, Maria Irene Fornes. And I uh, yeah, mean, in English. But I said, I think of her as been Cuban, uh, she's from my country. Um, and I directed Mud. And, um, and when I directed that play, I was fascinated by the structure, by the simplicity, by the economy, by the rhythms in the play. And I thought, you know what, I really want to do this. And it was meeting, and then Irene really happened to she went to Miami at the college. And I met her, I took a workshop with her, and she said, I have one. Um, she was teaching at Intar during that time. And she said, I only have one seat in the workshop. And during that time I was working at the Cargo Airport. Uh, and she said, Oh, if you want to, I don't know, I don't know what I'm doing at this workshop, you know, I, I do it here and there. So hey, it is a big chance you want know, to come to New York and study with me. And, and I thought, oh, well, I can't, you know, you know, it's this opportunity. So I called the, the cargo airport and I said, you know, I got offered this opportunity. I was on a Friday. On Sunday I was on an airplane. On Monday I came to New York, and I and she was one that really guided me uh, to in the whole playwright process. So that's how it started.
1: And what about you in terms of you know the the writers that you admire? Because I know that you often. Talk to me about Cuban poets and writers and, and particularly writers, uh, playwrights with a, with a very kind of poetic
4: voice. One of this, certainly uh, when it comes to Cuban playwrights, I love Riquelme uh, Pinheiro uh, uh, very much. Uh, certainly has enjoyed some of my work and uh, certainly a green very much. And then uh, it's a come And orca, okay. kind of course, orca, or smorca, more than anybody, <laughs> yes. Uh, but look, is Cuba, Cuba, no, I spent right. a lot of time in Cuba. Uh, yes, I adore orca. Um, definitely, uh,
1: Jessica, your origins don't directly relate to theater. Like, you started as a poet. But you did perform um, with writing quality Carlos that-
5: Well, actually, um, the first thing I ever did here in New York was at the Sheba Theater. Um, and it was with, well, no, wait a minute. It was in the old cabaret upstairs. And it was um, where the Mississippi meets the Amazon with Ntudaki Shange and Tamani Davis. And um, after that, um, Joe, who was very much alive at the time, um, offered me a chance to do a workshop piece of my own, which I did downstairs here, and it was called Mango Tango, and um, it was a piece uh, with a band, so it was with music, and one other actor, and even the musicians had to play parts, you know, so this was very streamlined production. And, but actually, um, I've always loved the theater. I think, you know, I was sitting here listening to everyone's response and uh, thinking that growing up in the Philippines, I think theater is real natural because everybody's so melodramatic. <laughs> and everything is high drama over there. And so I think theater kind of makes sense. Even if you're not formally schooled in it or whatever, it, it comes to you because everybody's always, you know, it's heightened and, you know, uh, I loved it because I grew up listening to a lot of radio dramas. And then, of course, whatever plays were around, my parents took me to, you know. And um, like Susan Laurie, I love musicals, too, and those older, grand ones, MGM musicals. I mean, you know, you, you grow up on that stuff. And, um, you know, you can't sort of get rid of it. I mean, it's a wonderful influence. So, uh, when I was living in San Francisco in the 70s, I went to theater school. ACT. And I wanted to be an actor and a director and a writer. These all those things. I thought, you know, why not? And uh, um, when I realized it wasn't going to be any work for me as an actor, um, I thought that perhaps what I could do is write for the theater and write in other mediums and create work for not just myself but for other performers who were not getting hired to do anything. You know, or playing hookers all the time.
1: Well that takes me to my next question in terms
5: of um uh, okay.
3: <laughs> No
1: it, the idea of um, what you know what ideas and, and themes are um, are you drawn to in your writing uh, in the sense of you just mentioned providing opportunities for work for people who don't normally who don't usually get work in the theater. So immediately that brings to mind um, asian American actors, writers, director well, I, I
3: think and that, so yeah. you
1: know how, how is that form what you have to say?
5: Well I just but want to create a landscape that I, I think feels more real to me you know what, uh, a lot of what I see um, sometimes is very disturbing to me because it's so limited or is so always one thing, and for me the world is not just that. You know, it's all these colors and and um, and stories and voices—not just Asian American, but everything. You know, and so um, I just try and sort of write these stories that. Well, it's not like I don't want to sound like I have this. You know, the agenda you know? comes first. It sort of doesn't for me. Um, I think I write unconsciously and. And I have these voices in my head, you know, and, and it happens even with my novels. I hear the voices first. And it, it always is sort of this dialogue, you know, or many, many dialogues and novels going on. And it's these characters that are very rich to me. And um, I, you know, so I try to evoke them on stage or on film or whatever. It
1: was. Well, it's kind of interesting because, um, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, but I would say that all of these writers are dealing in some way with a kind of socio-political uh, thematic material uh, that deals, you know, specifically colonialization. And you deal a lot with that in your plays. Um, well, some, um, and Miró, you know, your plays are political in the sense that the characters are living in an environment that is is impacting a circle kind of political structure. And your work has, has dealt a lot, as you said, with the, the agenda of the 60s and the, the post-Vietnam um, era. So, um, so Susan, Laura, can you expand on that in terms of the, the, the ideas that, that are represented in your work? Right. Um, I think i agree with you, just tried. I mean, there are,
6: people tell me there are lots of ideas in my work, but I don't think about any of those ideas. I mean, you know, when I'm writing, you know, it's like, who is the woman in the play, and what does she want, and where is she going, and what does she have in her hand, and what is she doing with it? You know, that kind of thing, and you keep following the characters, and you have a play, and you know, I don't. I, I. I don't think I've written yet. You know, the next play could be the one, but I have yet to write a play where I sit back and think I want to write a play about X, Y, Z because that issue needs to be addressed. It's
1: never right. So, so in that sense, let me get more specific. So, Venus. How. How did that idea get born? I was at a cocktail party and heard
6: uh, a wonderful record from. This person called the hot and hot and a bell went off of my head and I said, oh she's going to be in a plate of mine. Why? Because she had a big butt. <laughs> and I thought, I just written an article on Josephine Baker and um, I thought, oh yeah, I mean the article is all about the rear end exists and how you know the ass works and all that. So I was really keyed into black women and black women and black female movie, you know, not the meaning of it, the fact of it, you know, woman with a butt. So I said, hey, yeah, right, play about a woman with a butt. I wasn't thinking about colonialism, I was thinking about flesh.
3: Can I add something to that? Yeah.
5: (laughs) Well, there's flesh, developing the theme here. Yeah. Well, no, I think that's that's sort of a real and simple way to explain, um, how many of us work, um, where it starts with something so specific like the bud, or perhaps the idea of a, a, a street kid, you know, which is what um, was a lot of inspiration for me to write dog eaters, you know, seeing children on the street who live on the street and who live by their wits. I mean, now that's not the only thing that book was about or the play is going to be about, but that you know, that one image resonates for me and it led to, you know, blah, 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 blah so I, I think, you know, it always does start with this real thing, you know, this, this flesh or this person or this fruit in on one's hand, and, and then the politics and the colonialism and the poetry and the romance, you know, and the spirituality comes out of all of that, you know, and I think that's the only time it really works, because for me, a lot of what Susan Laurie does is so and language driven and yet the ideas are all there but there are also these startling images and you know I wonder if many of us don't start with the images you know and or we hear the voices and that drives this whole you know active thing and starts to happen. Yeah you know, that's interesting because you know in much of
1: work particularly in Orestes, and um, another person is where, you know, there was less character driven and much more driven by image Um, and language driven in a a very interesting way. You talk about that about that aspect of your work that's very image and language driven and that kind of amalgamation of language that you used in Orestes from different writers and how that came to be the, the, the landscape of that play. Yeah,
2: I guess I'd come at it is I think I start out also either hearing something or with an image or something very specific. And then when you make something um, around that grain of sand, you just make it the way you think the world is or the way it feels good to you. And I guess I think that, um, I mean, this sort of I've got to build the place.
4: year, um, the play, there was one particular play written by Dolores Prida, and apparently the Cubans in Miami thought that she was kind of leftist in some ways. <laughs> um, I don't know.
3: But
4: anyway. Anyway. <laughs> and um, her, um, that year, the festival was a big scandal because they her play had bomb threats. And it was national news. So I think that was maybe like Nineteen years old or something
3: like that, and I thought, oh shoot, you can't, you can't write about home, you know. And so for the longest time, I
4: lived in this paranoia. I mean, besides the fact that you know, my first ten years of my life, I was living in the paranoia
3: of Cuba and just being like what they call, you know, people who are going to leave the country, who sound
4: warm, and sort of being paranoid by that, and living paranoid in Miami too, in some ways. I was like, oh, you can't write about home. And then it was many years later that uh, McCarter uh, asked me to write a play, a short play. They asked uh, several writers to write about home. And I thought I was going to write about home here you know, in the United States, but somehow I went to Cuba. And I wrote a monologue, a mm. uh, uh, central monologue, in which became a larger piece, which is a park in our house. Uh, and uh, uh, so that's, well from then on, I uh, I decided, you know, I just went back uh, home all the time. Or I've been going back home lately because I've been writing some plays about Cuba because I feel like, well, nobody's writing about it. We have to break the silence, you know, definitely. We need to dialogue, you know. So, and uh, But it's funny because my plays are not even done in Miami. Uh, but anyway, so <laughs> that's what got me started. Oh, Florida stage is Miami. No, okay. it's in Palm Beach. Oh, I see. I, I, The people in Florida don't seem to go uh, travel far places like they do in California to go see plays, the beach, I don't know what it is. So, uh, Palm Beach is uh, is very isolated. Yeah, it's very Well, that
1: that leads me to my next question. and I
3: think, well
1: at least with three of you, you have had significant relationships with, with theater companies you with Unbarned mm-hmm. Arts in particular, and Susan Mory, would you say the public? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Nilo, uh, you've had relationships with several, you had a relationship with McCarter significantly, and um, and the magic, and the public, public. And, and Jessica, your relationship with your first major play, would you say that it was with La Hoya? Yeah. Right. So if you could all talk about how that came to be, are these were these places in the case of Bain Gartics which doesn't exist anymore, were they homes for you in a certain kind of way? And how how were they homes for you and why were they homes for your collaborations there with the artists that were part of that and the producers that were part of that uh, theater? What was it about your work that they responded to uh, that made you feel a connection to them? If, if any of those comments apply, if
2: not, people talk. Uh, about. Uh, uh, with On Guard Arts, uh, I, I saw a piece um, in the meat market, some of you may have seen, uh, uh, written from the conceived the stage. Uh, done by Reza Abdo um, uh, and produced by Annie Hamburger ran on guard arms. She's now gone to take over the La Playhouse. Anyway, I saw that piece which was in and out of the streets of the meat market and in and out of warehouses and uh, all kinds of places and with um, uh, car bookers, this is a theme movie. Car bookers, uh, walking through the middle of the piece and you didn't know if they were actors or audience members or if they were working. Uh, and uh, cars would drive down Washington Street and stop. I remember this limousine driving down, and the shaded window came down like this. And then it went back up and drove on. And at one point I was following, you know, you wandered around the street and you went in these uh, uh, warehouses and stuff. And I took a wrong turn and I ended up standing. It was Bastille Day. And uh, so I was standing there watching everybody having dinner
3: at uh, Florent for about 10 minutes. I thought it was
2: part of the piece. <laughs> and uh, so I, I thought it was so incredible. So I went home and I called Annie Hamburger at the message on her machine saying, I want to do that. So uh, we did. And what that was for me was really, really, totally uh, rethinking what a theatrical experience was. That is to say, you take it into the streets so that it breaks down the walls between life you're still trying to make a, a self-contained blah, blah. I don't know if it's too hard to sort of delimit in some way, but you, you get the idea. It's just a great, exhilarating feeling and people coming to see this event who never otherwise go to the theater, some people seeing it by accident, um, incorporating the life of the city within it. The city becomes a center. Yep. Thing that happens in the piece is played against the architecture of the city and the social economic structure of the real world. But, I mean, just, I don't know, i go on and on. All the things that I thought that were so thrilling about it, which is not what I did. I mean, that's what Annie Hamburger set up as a um, producer. with 20 or 30 or 35 or 40 actors because all the union contracts didn't apply. Um, So you could do amazing stuff that could never otherwise be done. We did a piece, um, uh, Ann Bogart directed, that we, I wanted to do a piece about people on the fringe, marginal people. And uh, so we got this abandoned cancer hospital on 106th in Sunny Park West, um, which is this amazing old building. Um, and we uh, performed sort of in the building. And then the main thing was this dinner table set up in the courtyard. I sort of thought of the piece as nothing more than these strange people come out and they, um, with the audience, they break bread. We and they perform the
3: most fundamental sort of social and um,
2: befriending ritual uh, that we have, which is to share a meal together. So these weird people come up, they sit around the dinner table, they say a lot of weird stuff. And the audience, which feels, I thought, odd and uncomfortable in the beginning, gradually relaxes until by the end, I think, they love the people who are on stage. I mean, I don't know if that's true, but that's how it seemed to me. And we're, and we're moved by it. Yeah, that's all. Just. Made a human connection with these people. That was the event. That was the event. And um, uh, you know, there were uh, there was a blind fire from the lighthouse, and there was a, a deaf and dumb guy um, who was quite brilliant. Died a few years ago. Um, there was a rock band. Uh, guys who had recently been discharged from a mental hospital uh, who played great music. People came in from the neighborhood. I mean, kids came in from the neighborhood. And Annie, uh, one of the wonderful things about Annie was she gave away a lot of free tickets every night. So there were like 40, 50 kids in the house every night who had never seen a live theatrical event before. Many of them came back night after night, great audience. There was the sort of downtown art crowd, and there were these adolescent boys, and they all laughed in different places. It was really
3: great.
2: (laughs) Such a great audience. You know, I hate an audience where, like, everybody laughs at the punchline. It's really, then you know you've really conspired somehow. So it was this fabulous audience. I don't know. It also it it selects an audience that's amazed because. Well, I remember we did another piece we did that Tina Landau directed. Tina, you know, has a piece that's about to open here. She's incredibly brilliant, and we did this piece on the banks of the Hudson River, which was based on Orestes. I remember going to a rehearsal one night. I got in a cab to this rehearsal. I said to the cab driver could you take me to get down on West 57th Street to where the Department of Sanitation pier is, and you take a right turn through the storm fence and you go up this dirt road along the Hudson River?" He said, um, I don't think so. I said, no, 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 it's, I, I understand it seems weird, but actually we're, we're rehearsing a play there. He said, I haven't heard about it. I said, well. Uh, And then I saw that his license, he had a Greek name. I said, you know, it's it's based on the great Greek play, Orestes. He said, I've never heard of it. (laughs) So, it was a radio dispatch cab. So he called his dispatcher. They had this conversation in Greek. (laughs) Finally I see his body relaxes. He turns to me and he says, he killed his mother, right? I said, yeah. I said, OK. So, uh,
3: well, the, the thing is that because these plays were done in these scary neighborhoods, or anyway, neighborhoods that normal theater people don't go to, it meant that the audience you got was an audience of really adventurous people. They were really alive. It was really exciting to be with them. Um, So it made a
2: whole different kind of theatrical experience. So yeah, it's been immensely important to me. I think about it all the time. It's the reason I write plays now that are too big for other theaters to put on, usually. Big casts and difficult stuff, and I find it very hard to find theaters. I mean, it's hard to afford. And the stuff is often too strange for um, audiences. Um, But um, yeah, it deeply affected the way I write without my ever thinking, oh, I'd like to write an on-guard arts play. um, You just step into a culture world and it affects who you are I think. And so I think it's really important, I mean of course playwrights are always in the position of just pathetic, hopeless, degraded beggars trying to get their plays out somewhere. But um, it's important to uh, choose a, a culture that actually is a great place to live and be and I think that's um, one of the great things about the public theater is it's like a great place to live as a playwright, I It's a great place to live as a playwright. Um, I feel really lucky.
6: Before I um, had a play here, I was welcomed into the Yale um, School of Drama community. A lot of Someone was laughing. <laughs> the only, only as a professor, I didn't go there as a student. Um, but they also, uh, when Stanley Muscibny took over, did the death of the last black man in the whole entire world, which was really big for New Haven. Um, cast of what was it, eleven or twelve black folks, you know, saying strange things, and it was it was a lot of fun. Um, but before that, there was Baca Downtown, which doesn't exist. Talk about scary places. Downtown Brooklyn used to be, before MetroTech, a really weird place I used to live. There, by the pet store, you know, weird um, place to do plays. But I feel as if I've been, you know, Baca and Yale and now the public um, surrounded by, quite, surrounded by love, which yes. is very important to me um, as a writer it doesn't mean that I don't you know write any angry plays anymore. But I'm um, I just know that um, I write a play. And I, I, mean, I, I I wrote a play earlier this year and I called up Bonnie Mancur the an associate producer. And, Bonnie, 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 can I read? It? Can I read? It? She says, Sure, sure, you can have a reading. You know, and I come in
3: with my little
6: thing, yes. and it was just so great, you know, how supportive. Um a home can be
3: it's been
4: really, really great for me. Yes, I can say the same thing for myself. Um this this play that I'm gonna be doing here um started at McCarter. I spoke to them because they were thinking you know giving me a bigger commission uh, to run another play. And I said, you know, I really want to go back to the radio play and expand it because I really like those characters. And I really think that I didn't capture the whole lives uh, in the radio play. So they, they, they gave me uh, more money. And I decided to um, to expand, decided to expand the, the radio play into a two-pack play. But that took like two years for me to do that, and 13 drafts. Uh, and was free, what was really wonderful about working with the McCarter and also working with the public, because I did several readings at the McCarter during the process, and I also did a reading here, and then did a reading at New York Theatre Workshop. I mean, to me, writing is very its very much like painting. And uh, I write in solitary, yes, in a room, and. Uh, with my computer, my hand and in, in the computer, and uh, I notice that when the play is in the computer, it reads a certain way. When I print it, it reads another way. When I do it with actors, it's completely another, uh, another way, and, and that's the best process when you are doing it, uh, when you have a meeting, when you actually have a workshop, because it's when you see the canvas up, and you can see what's working, what's not working. So for me, the workshop situation uh, in theaters, uh, for me, is very valuable. Uh, so and theaters like the McCarter, uh, theaters like the Public, New York Theater Workshop have uh, definitely given me the space to to do this kind of work.
1: I just want to get a little technical here. Yes. I'm so fascinated by this myself,
4: being a dramaturg.
1: In the in the course of those thirteen drafts and workshops and readings, what exactly happens? I mean, what who who gives you notes? What Else do they give you? What are the expectations of the theater that you're going to take those notes and develop it along the lines that they think is the way the play goes? Because you know, this is, I think, always very dangerous territory, but I just
4: want to know what... Well, I think it's a very, I think it's a very tricky thing to begin with because um, you just finish a draft. You don't even know what, this, what, the, what the draft sounds like. And immediately after a reading... Uh, you're given feedback from uh, usually an audience, uh, and then uh, a dramaturg or uh, people in the in the, uh, the producers, um, which is very tricky because you know that they're you know depends on the reading how it went you know there, you might know some things that are not working in the piece. Um, I mean I think it's very helpful, um, but one has to. Well, let me just backtrack a little bit. I think I'm more of an experienced play right now. Uh, play right now. Um, I thought I said play. I'm a more experienced play right now. You <laughs> are a too. You're play. You So I'm very careful in whom I take notes from. But I let's say with the McCarter, I was working with a very specific uh, dramaturg, which is Dennis Parent, and. Um, she really knows the way to work. She knows when to pull back and not give me any notes. She knows, she knows what to ask sometimes. And uh, so a really wonderful uh, working relationship. I, I am not against uh, dramaturgs at all. I really like, I, at least the ones I've encountered, uh, except for one, um, have <laughs> been really helpful in my process. Really wonderful to dialogue with them, uh, because I, I, um, I I'm always eager to talk about people, uh,
3: to talk to people about the, the process. So who better than a,
4: a, a dramaturg who's working with me, and I can just talk about my particular play. <laughs> and uh, so.
1: How do you understand my last dramaturg question? Yeah, but as you're moving through those, as you were moving through those thirteen drafts, did you always feel like you were moving pretty much in the direction you wanted to, or did you feel that you had to? accomplish
4: a certain agenda that maybe you weren't that comfortable with, but felt it? You know, I think, you know, it's like, like Chekhov said, when it was with Three Sisters, he said, oh, when you finished writing it, it didn't turn out the way I thought it was going to be. <laughs> and I find it's usually the case with every play. I, you know, just things start to happen and you just let it be. Uh, I mean, I wasn't guiding it at all. I wasn't just letting each draft inform more what the world was all about. And I was going along with it, and uh, and that's how I came up with uh, hopefully the last draft. <laughs> I mean, I'm still going to do a little bit of tweaking here and there. One never stops. But I think that's why it's important to also uh, not just to have the workshops, but to have the productions and not just premieres. We're so like into premieres. You know, your work gets done once and never <laughs> gets done again. Because every theater is looking for premieres, and I think it's awful. I, I think yeah. we should have two or three and or because one is always learning, one is always refining the work. Yeah, there's always when I mean, you look at brochures, it's world premiere, East Coast
1: premiere, New York premiere. You know, it's, it's starting to get you know very territorial in terms of people, and theater companies' claims on play, and how the theater wants to be received in, in terms of its relationships.
4: Anyway, that's a little. I think also working with a director was also very important when I was doing those meetings, too, by the way, um...
1: Jessica, so you wrote Dog Eaters as a novel yes. in 1992? One. One. And so how did that relationship come up? How did that com- uh, La Jolla commission you?
5: Yes, uh, actually, I I met Michael Greif, the director. Here we were artistic associates for a brief time um, when Joanne was the or you know yeah. Joanne Avalides. Avalides was the artistic director. She tried to sort of put together a group of artists in different genres to come together and kind of network and um, I don't know talk about ideas and you know, be like a Sorts. And so I met Michael Ben and he said, you know, how well, the novel had really uh, touched him and uh, I said, thank you very much. And then a few months later called me and said, well, you know, have you ever thought of turning it into a play? And I thought, hell no, you know, that is like, that's too, it's too big and kind of unwieldy, I thought, and, uh, and I'd always thought of it as a, as a film. And he said, "Well, I don't see why you couldn't do both." And he said, "You know, you should really rethink this and and and, and you know see if, if you want to try." And um, and of course, you know, um, my interest was uh, you know, provoked. And uh, he sort of was very persistent in a gentle way. It was, a, it was sort of terrifying to me. Because I thought, "Well, knowing it's like if you know too much about." Of theater today, I, I thought, well, how is this ever going to work? You know, because I'm not going to want to reduce this novel to a two character piece that will get produced. I'm not yes. impossible. So, realistically, what are the chances of it ever getting done? And, um, but he said, well, let's do one step at a time. And there was an opportunity to go up to Sundance to the theater lab, which turned out to be a really great thing for me because. Um, within a span of, you know, it's very short—two and a half weeks—I got to work with these incredible actors, and I—I I think for me, um, it was trial by fire, and it, I work well that way. I mean, I like to do things like on, you know, spontaneously, and all the actors right there, and rewriting on the spot. And um, I went up there with maybe four scenes, you know, and by the end of the two and a half weeks, I had the first act. You know, at least a draft written and which you know I couldn't have done here in Manhattan. And the opportunity to work with these actors was really just marvelous and you were there and you worked with me on it. And so um, I got really good feedback and I started to see that perhaps it was possible to do this. And uh, I felt back in the process of working in theater, because it had been a long time since I'd done anything like this, and also such a big piece, you know, not a performance piece where I was controlling everything, but a piece where I was collaborating with, with you know, a huge group of people, and we were all depending on each other, having to sort of trust each, each other's vision. Um, and, you know, from then on, then, it became a reality, and I got the commission with La Jolla, and um, we produced it last year. So you, you were commissioned after the Sundance? Well, was sort of during, it, it, oh, and, you okay. know. It was, the Sundance was like, well, let's see how you know you like it or if you want to continue. And, and I think Michael didn't want me to feel a pressure of, uh, I must do this. You know, it was like, do the lab and see what happens with the script. Because I really just have the script. I had ideas, but I went up there with really very little, you know. And I just wrote all the time there. And when you went to La Jolla,
1: what was that rehearsal process like in terms of developing the play, and your
5: relationship with Michael? Oh, before La Jolla too, there was the New York Theatre Workshop. We did many readings of the script, so there was all of that, you know, developing, trying things out um, here. And then uh, in La Jolla, I, I was, luckily, also artist in residence at UCSD on the campus. So I got to use that time to continue working in the theater. It was two different things, really. but um, And using some of the actors from the, from the, the, the drama program right, um, while I was there, and working very closely with Michael. He was sort of my dramaturg. Really, I mean, I didn't have a dramaturg, but my director. Um, And um, we just kept sort of honing it and working with the actors in the morning and seeing if things rang true or not. And then uh, he said, Well, let's do it in the fall or whatever, you know, their fall of the summer. And I said, Great. I mean, you know, it was just sort of very fast for me. So
1: this is, um, well, the public went out to see the play. I had worked on it at Sundance and Sundance was very excited about the play. One of the producers went out to see it and came back and talked about how exciting the piece was, and then we did a reading here. Right. And then uh, George Wolfe became very excited by the piece and asked Jessica if she was willing to continue to develop the play. And so. Um, so I just wanted to ask you, this, it's a cheap thing, but what, did you see room, when, when you had finished the the, the production at La did you feel that the play was finished?
5: No, I thought the second act was finished. But I, I thought the first act could use something. I wasn't sure what, I'm still not sure what. <laughs> and, you know, because I, I, I think it's, it's a big um, challenge it really is because you're, you're dealing with a particular time in history that Americans know nothing about very few do and you can't just throw this stuff out there and, and hope people get it you know at the same time I don't want to uh, be didactic or do a history lesson you know so how do you do all that and, and you know in in a really organic way and that's, I think, where we are now is, is trying to give the first act the same fierceness and spirit that the second half has because the
3: second half I already know what's happening. It's like propelling <laughs>
5: its own way, you know. I, I feel very good about the second half, but the first half to me is, is still stiff. And I knew that there, but I also felt like it was still good, you know. I yeah, I still enjoyed it. She well, didn't it win
1: the
3: <laughs> <laughs>
5: That's the wonderful thing about Jessica.
1: She just loves working and loves, you know, it's just oh, a okay. very joyful spirit yeah. working with you. Um, and so you won
5: an award? Yeah, the play won an award. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was great. The cast was tremendous. And, you know, I mean, it was a chance to see all these sort of magnificent actors, you know, really get to sink their teeth into something. You know, people like Alec Bamba and, you know, Emily Corotta, people like that, you know, just ching Valdez, It was tremendous. So, I, I felt like for that it was very gratifying to me.
4: Can I ask uh, a something? Uh, because I feel like you and I are working in similar landscapes, you're especially in Mount Eaters, you're writing about the Philippines but an island. I'm writing on another island that's nothing to do with the United States. <laughs> and often in my work, Asked to do a lot of exposition because um, a lot of North Americans, or just just people of the world, don't know the specifics of what has happened. In, in my area, I guess the same for your audience. So, um, do you find that sometimes um, they, uh, dramaturgers or just producers in the theater, are asking um, too much uh, from from plays to they, they, you know Giving all this information sometimes might overburden a play. Uh, I mean, have you confronted the same thing that I have in, in, in the past? Oh, yeah.
5: yeah. Absolutely. Um, and I think I, I was fortunate because even um, though we're in the beginning stages of working here, one thing Michael and, and George said to me don't explain. But then, you know, you still have the thing well, okay, don't explain, but how do you? As possible. I think so. It's it's a real, you know, I don't think anyone has the answer, but I think I've been fortunate in working with people who are very sensitive to the fact that, yes, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a tough find we find ourselves in, because we know this stuff and, you know, the ten Platinos have come, get the whole picture. <laughs> Been in, huh. and then you got the other 200 people sitting there going, what is this, you know, um, so what do you do, you know, because the temple meals aren't really yeah. so it's, but I think there's a way, I mean, I, I think that there is a way, and I don't want to do exposition, ever, and um, I hope surely if you ever catch me just put a pillow over my head. you know, sometimes I start to do that because I think, oh, I got to, I got to, I got to, and then what I need to do is not. Um, Susan
1: Laurie, when you did Venus at Yale, what what happened when the with the production there, and then was there a significant change when it came to New York, to the public? I can't remember. Because that was a co-production with Yale and I don't remember. I
6: mean I it wasn't I and I, I remember uh production thing. I'm just kind of thinking about the
1: Started out, and how is that changing? Or you, you just mentioned that you wrote plays with forty characters with On Guard Arts, and On Guard Arts no longer exists. And the reality, of the economics, and and you know what I consider to be a kind of conservative landscape in the theater, particularly it's political plays. Um, how do you see your work changing as a as a, as a reflection of that,
3: or not?
2: Well, I just write plays for forty characters, and they don't get put on. <laughs> um, and um, I, I guess I've—I mean, I guess I've never also felt that there was something I did, and that's what I'm doing forever. Um, I feel as though I've always written different stuff. Actually, I got uh, the Magic Theater in San Francisco commissioned a piece from me about a year ago. And uh, they said, you can only have eight actors. I thought, God, how do you write a play only eight actors? That's really amazing. So I thought that would be an interesting challenge. And uh, so I started writing it. And it turned out to have like 22 characters. that just all doubled. Mm-hmm. And it got to be fun. And part of it was sort of the game of, oh, he goes off, Now he comes on. So (laughs) that was kind of fun, too, and how long it takes before you bring somebody back on stage. So I just got into this whole deal.
3: It was like really cool. And I also thought, oh, wow, the Magic Theater, like San Francisco, Okay, There's no point in doing this unless I do something really weird and fucked up, because nobody cares
2: Um, we're doing this workshop, Magic Theater, and nobody's going to see it, and it's not in my hometown, so my friends won't see it, so I should do something as weird as I possibly can. And as a result, I think I wrote the most mainstream play I've ever (laughs) written. Um, it's sort of a light romantic comedy.
3: (laughs) And
2: I gave it to the director. Actually, I gave it to the director of the magic. He didn't know what to do with it. And so, I mean, he went into the workshop. I was in New York. I flew out like after two weeks, they're rehearsing it. They're rehearsing it. I go into rehearsal. Here's this dark nightmare. You know, because they didn't know what to do with it. Um, And then we worked on it a little bit, and it turned out to be sweet comedy. So who knows? I don't know. Um, But I actually I, I think maybe I'm happier now uh, the past few years and I think my plays are actually happier. That's sort of the biggest change I noticed. Uh, I don't think I'm any less connected to what horrifies me in the world and I sort of reserve the right to write some really nasty piece of shit in the future. But at the moment, I feel really happy. Um, and so I think these plays are coming out. And that seems like a bigger difference, really, than 40 characters or, or eight actors. Also, of course, I have to admit, I've just been reading Shakespeare up one side and down the other um, because very late in life, I've discovered love of Shakespeare, and I came at him in this kind of weird way. I, I did a lot of pieces based on the Greeks because they deal with these characters who, you know, murder their mothers and fathers and cut up their sons and serve them to the father for dinner and stuff like that. And they like these are the problems they take for clothes. It's
3: like not. Oh, there's been a a little misunderstanding let's see if we can clear it up before the commercial break and they sort of say
2: this is how people really are they're really savage now make a civilization out of this
3: so i just became lost in the greeks which i I thought they were incredible and then i thought oh my god the greeks have these principal characters and then they have a chorus principal characters chorus principal characters chorus all shakespeare did was he took the chorus and went 72 characters i thought whoa so i've just been reading shakespeare and of course the other thing shakespeare did is he wrote for a company of actors if you look at the plays they are like 12 actors
2: and a few others maybe and a lot of doubling and part of it is the then you get into the pleasure of the multiple human beings that exist in a single human being and the pleasure of seeing an actor do that and all kinds of other stuff. So I don't know. I mean, it feels, uh, it's hard for me to think cause and effect so much as this continuing bunch of stuff that keeps changing all the time. Susan yeah. Laurie?
6: start you know no one's like you know dead like the death of the last black man He's dead for the whole play. um and so there were fewer dead
1: people Um, do you see the the landscape of your language changing in any kind of way express yourself sure dead people
6: speak differently from (laughs) I i mean Different and it's, as a playwright, you know, I always feel haunted, but if you're haunted by someone dead who's way, 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 way back here, like being haunted by Venus, you know, this woman that lived in the year 1800, for example, it's very different from being haunted by Hester Negrita, who's the heroine of the play in Blood, very, because she's sitting, you know, she's right in so the language is much more Someone saw a reading of my play recently, uh, not this one, but another one, and said, I didn't know you could write uh, dialogue. How I know, I didn't know. They said, I didn't know you were good with language. And I said, that was really funny. I just laughed. You know? I
3: mean, that was funny, but,
6: you
1: know. I'll take it.
6: So now I'm good with language.
1: <laughs> So
4: Nilo, do you do you see yourself moving in a in a different direction thematically? Or? You know, I um I just saw an exhibition on uh, on Thursday of uh, Clemente uh, at Bukhanin. And you look at Clemente's work; um, they're all very different, but they all
7: have a same signature. And I find it's the same thing for lyrics, for novelists, and
4: for uh, poets. Um, in May, I, uh, I took a, a long trip. I was in India for like a whole month, and I thought, Wow, what a landscape to write about! How oh, oh, incredible! But who am I? This Cuban writing in India about Indian people? I mean, it's ridiculous, you know. I mean, I guess if I lived there for a long time, then I, mean, I would learn about the people and live close to them. Then I, then I would build up the courage to, to write about them. But you know what, when I came back from India, I came back so full from that experience that I wrote a play in a whole month. In a month, I mean, the two I play And it was something that I that I discovered in India that um, the purity of people, or I don't want to say the word innocence, because I think that's, it's a purity in the way they are, the way they live their lives. Purity not in a way of being virgin or being, uh, wearing white clothes or anything like that, but embracing them. Embracing anger, embracing a uh, uh, moment of um, sadness, uh, and there's something that uh, struck me too when I was in Mexico, and it's also something that struck me when I was when I visited my country again. And I thought, oh, this purity of the people that certainly we don't find so much in this country. Uh, I find with the youth, especially, because we're so bombarded by television and news uh, and stuff. I find our youth tend to be a little boring sometimes. Oh I've seen everything I'm bored of life because I I I've, I've been exposed to so many things, but the people there that have been exposed to so as many things as we have here, they maintain this purity that I was so intrigued about. And I wrote a play about that. I think it's this it's play about so again, I think that's in my other place too. Uh, so but it's just a, a different way of looking at it. <laughs>
3: First things
5: first, first,
1: right? OK, so um, yeah. that's, that's an answer. Um, so I'm going to open this out to
7: all of you uh, questions, except that I can't see anything out there. Um, I see a hand waving back there. First of all, I do have a question. But second of all, I also want to say my two cents. All four of you, all five of you, for an absolute breath of fresh air. A beautiful, clean shower. I've been gone 15 years. I actually started working at the festival when I was 14 years old. And I've come back. I've gone out of New York for 15 years, and I came back for first went. And this is a piece of historical
3: memorabilia where that exit sign, Willis Painter, died, Susan Laurie.
7: So I think this is a wonderful, the pub is a wonderful memorial to the theater manager that Joseph Papp, you worked with to build this absolutely exquisite moment, which is today. And Nilo, Palm Beach is called. There's one word for it, that The question I have for you is this. I heard you talk about expository. I heard you discuss um, Shakespeare and the structure of it. The biggest question that I have, as a playwright, as a writer, it's almost almost a combined sort of veterinarian question. When you deal with
3: the odds of the entire world, attempting to put your life together,
7: attempting to deal with the real world, and not being a mad scientist at 3 o'clock in the morning in order to get that play done, what are the details of the spiritual will, the motivation, the, 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 the perseverance, all this as, as they would call it, the eye of the tiger, that you can continue with the goal that you have to express and I would assume, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, all for it. you, correct me if I'm wrong, that there's this, this thing you're trying to express, There's this thing that you're trying to feel out, whether it be socio-political as Shakespeare was, socio-political. Or is it is it a combination of the outside world, and the inside world? And I know it's sort of a vague question I'm asking, but the question I'm really asking is: as you put that pen or keyboard to paper, and you get out, Theodore Dreiser used a little uh, a little uh, village, little cars running back and forth, and people talking to each other. What is that mechanism, that twist, that allows you to say the rest of the world will be damned?
6: I'm
4: going to get this done. Focus. Focus. That's right. That's
5: well, I, took- well I, I was just going to ask the gentleman, is your question, how do we focus with all the stuff going like, on? I mean,
7: yeah, yeah. Oh, with, with all the, the stuff the, going how on, do you focus? how do you get to that moment you can where you put out the love life? The paying the rent, the dealing with reality.
3: Uh, okay,
7: whatever. And by the way, I was the one laughing throughout this entire thing because I just find you all to be an absolute breath of fresh air.
4: Did
1: you want to say something?
4: Well, I tell you, if I don't write, um, you don't want to be around me. I tell you, um, I have to write. I have to write because otherwise I go crazy. Um, It's amazing. It's such a gift to be able to enter a world. Uh, When I first of all, I find that when I start writing, everything becomes the writing. I mean, and uh, the lamp, (laughs) the chair, everything. It's it's a it's a very it's a meditative. uh, I don't think I don't think first of all I don't think meditation is sitting down. It's, It's 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 a state of being. And when I start, uh, when I enter a play, everything becomes a play. When I go out into the street, I'm looking. I'm like, it's like nesting. It's finding a woman that looks like my character. It's uh, seeing a situation that all of a sudden that I can draw from. Or um, just, everything becomes inspiration in many ways. I'm also terrified of the chair. Terrified of sitting down. You know? And I'm not the only one saying this. Actually, Gabriel Garcia Marquez said the same thing. I'm terrified of sitting down because I don't know what's going to come out. Maybe it's good, maybe it's bad. You know. So I am also, and I think it's important to have that fear too. I find that actors have that fear before going on stage, but they also use it as adrenaline. It's, it fortifies the performance. So um, that's my answer.
5: I, I think uh, I would have to say, uh, I, I. Nilo said it very well for me, too, that without the writing, you know, all that stuff, all that, it's, it's everyday mundane stuff that we all have to deal with and, and we have to pay those bills and, you know, answer the phone and, and all of that, and it's important. Um, but it wouldn't make any sense. I mean, I can't live if I can't write. And, and I am very unhappy when I don't write. Um, so I, I think you deal with all, all that life stuff by either using it, you know, and, and even the, 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 the dreary stuff becomes useful to me. Um, Not being able to pay the rent, for example, is very useful when you're talking about Manila (laughs) where everybody's so poor, you know, I mean, you know, it's just, oh, this is good, this is good. I mean, I think you can do that, and I think part of the focus is that if you don't focus, you'll go mad, you know, for me. Um, Then it becomes only about dealing with uh, that outer life, which is not as important to me. And I don't want to do that, so I have to focus because it makes me happy. It's my deepest
2: pleasure to write. Oh, this, you know, what they said. I, I'm I'm 61 years old. I've never made a living as a playwright, Um, so it's a form of illness, I guess. Um, And. I, uh, if I'm not doing it, I feel confused and uh, hopeless, and uh, stuff blows through my mind and is so disorienting to me that I can't go on, and so putting it into some vessel to contain it feels good to me.
6: No, I just wanted to add something because, like Jessica said, it's the greatest joy, but also it's as if, you know, I'm fighting for my life. I mean, I was walking around like, whatever, for the past nine months, and somebody said, what's the matter? I said, my play is trying to kill me. If I don't write it, it will kill me. It will pull me under the water like undertow. So the writing is more like, you're not going to, you know, do me, like, you know. To somehow
4: create an order out of the chaos I also wanted to add that I find that there are moments that it seems like a curse too, because there are moments that I do not want to sit down and and just enter that world because I want to live my own life too. You know, I want uh, to... It's your own life. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I certainly want to be in love. I want to have a partner. I want to go out to a restaurant. Instead, I stay home and I write, you know? So, so it is a curse in many ways, too. Sometimes I, I really don't. I, 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 but it's also a love, you know? Um, so... You had a question? Would you comment
3: a bit, um, on the question, please, and, um, if yes,
6: how?
5: about uh, apologizing. Um, If if that's how you heard it, that's not what I intended. I wasn't apologizing. I was trying to address um, a question that Shirley gave which is, when you sit down to write, for me, I'm not talking for you or for any of the people here on the panel, I don't, for example, right now I'm working on a, a new novel, and I am not a writer who knows the trajectory as I sit down. You know, it's sort of unconscious to me. I mean, I I start with one character, and this is the same way with the play I'm working on now, trying to rewrite. It's like, okay, that's clearer to me because it came from a novel that's already finished. So I know that that's a post-colonial novel and it deals with this and it deals with that. But when I sit down to write, I don't sit there and go, okay, I'm going to write about the oppression of the street kids, you know. No, that's not what how I work. I I say, okay, this child is what inspired me. Let's see where this goes. I don't know why this child is haunting me as opposed to the child's mother who's standing right there, who's 14 years old and is just as tormented. But for some reason, this kid's face, you know stuck in my mind, and I am going to go with that for now. Now, I don't know where this is going to lead me, but I'm not going to sit there and say that my agenda is to write, you know, Les Miserables. Maybe, which would be great, but that's, I don't know. It could become a short story. It could be a moment.
3: Do you the pressure? Of
5: course I do, but that, I don't start with an idea of where it's going to go. I start with this child's face and why it haunts me Uh, because I am in the dark and the writing for me is a journey and when I'm done with it, then I know what it is. Okay? I don't start with, you know, the ideas and I think that's what we're trying to say, you know, (coughs) is to demystify some of this. Perhaps you do and that's great. And perhaps, you know, Charles Mead does, because he's coming out of another experience. But that's not how I work. That's, and I'm not apologizing for shit. You no, know, perhaps I, don't. I don't. No, but I think that that's sort of rude of you to, to say that, you know, that, uh, that
1: we're okay. not, uh, uh, all right, you made a comment and she made a comment.
4: Okay, uh, any questions? So, no, but I, I, can I say something, oh, too? Yes. Because oh, I, um, I'm, I find that um, if I set out to write a political play, per se, I think that if I write, I will fail at what I'm doing. I also wanted to, to say something that, it depends when you talk about politics, because I find that that politics takes on so many different dimensions, and it's framed in so many different ways. For instance, I saw a movie, that it was about Vietnam, and the movie, it's called The Scent of the Green Papaya. I don't know if you ever, any of you yeah. saw it. It was not a political... The theme of the movie was not political at all. It was a very sensual movie about Vietnam. About how Vietnam was before the war. But, when I walked out of the movie, I thought to myself, Oh my God, this is the most political movie I've ever seen. Because it showed a country in its wholeness before the war. And look at, so the movie is actually saying, look at what you did to us through destruction. You've destroyed, destroyed this paradise. And I thought that it was very poignant. I thought it was extremely political. And yet it wasn't. So it depends. You know, I think politics is, is, it's, is you know, it, it takes on to different colors, different shades. And uh, one has to find a way, different ways of doing it. And that's the challenge of an of a artist.
2: From my recent experience in other countries, in France, for example, um, as opposed to, say, sitting on a place here, I see radically different objects here. I mean, I I don't know that there are exceptions that usually take place, say, in the street, in and so on. You get a totally different audience, but if you have an established theater building, you tend to get fairly well educated, fairly active digitalizing your audience, you don't get, as
7: you would say, Latin America, as you would France, you don't get the plumbers, the domestic workers, you don't get the get taxi drivers. How my is, do, does anyone here have any suggestion for how to get the taxi drivers in the um, in
5: Can I because when well, we did dog eaters in in La Jolla, which is in the San Diego area, which has the largest communities of Filipino American We really did a massive, you know, outreach and did as many different ways of bringing people into the theater, offering $10 tickets or, you know, one ticket for free, you know, one for 10 bucks kind of thing. Um, And really worked with a whole bunch of community centers and the libraries and the outline. I mean, it was a lot of work, but I think it was worth it because I think, that it, it, it did bring in people who, unfortunately, you know, then what is the theater going to do? So the Filipino play leaves, and then are those same people going to keep coming? Um, because that's also what you want people to do, is to continue going to the theater and seeing everybody's plays, and not just, oh, I'm going to go see the play that relates to my immediate, you know, concerns. And so that's an ongoing problem, I think. But, I think there are many, many ways that theater can try because I certainly saw it happen and, and you know, I went out there as the writer of the play as well as the cast who did not have to come. I sort of told them you're you do not have to do all this, you know, if work hard enough. But it was important to them as you know Filipino American actors to get all these communities to come and see them. So yeah, I think you can work out things, but it's it's all about kind of economic, you know, do you stick your neck out and do you get the grants to help the theater you know do this kind of massive outreach so that these people who cannot plump 45 bucks down for a ticket can come and I, mean, I you know it's totally about money I mean I don't really go to the theater much I can't afford I'm serious
7: uh-huh. yeah, I mean it's going
5: to be to be Yeah even movies are becoming quite expensive. Yeah, um, we have
1: time for one more
3: question.
7: I see any other. <laughs> Two more questions, and that's then... <laughs> <laughs> here, here. I really mean, like what you said about writing is a journey. Can you speak up I really like that you said writing is <laughs> a journey, and putting out
6: continue to change and what I have to do, it's like you were saying, let the draft lead you. I have to listen to what I know the play is. I have this whole belief. The play is already written. I have to get out of the way. So I have to listen because the play is calling me and I just have to keep listening to what I know it is on some subconscious level and continue to work toward it, which sometimes takes a week sometimes takes, you know, seven years. Oh, well, I, um,
2: I don't usually go back to stuff after a few years. I, I rewrite and rewrite and rewrite continuously all the time. Um, and um, uh, by the time I've finished a piece, it's gone through. I don't even have any idea how many drafts by the time I've finished it. And I like to put aside and come back to it, put aside and come back to it repeatedly over the course of a year or a year and a half. Because I think that the principal reason for rewriting is not to take something that isn't perfect and polish it until it is perfect. I think the reason is to take this thing and turn it over and look at it like this in different moods and different frames of mind and different emotions. To come at it after you've just had a fight with somebody, to come at it after you've just made love, to come at it after you've just been to France, to come at it you know, in all of these ways so that by the time you've finished it, it has all of you in it. It's, it's at least as rich as you can be as a person. Has many different you know, facets, points of view, feelings, emotions, so that it finally contains all the emotions that you're capable of. But if I've put and I've put away stuff that I think is bad, and it's still bad, and I go back sometimes, <laughs> I go back a few years later and I look at something and I think I should get that out and work on it again. But I'm a whole different person. I really mean it. I I really feel like I've gone so to some other place in my life that I don't even know how to get back into something Um, if it's been on the shelf for a few years. It was written
3: by somebody else in a different epoch. I just went back to a play that I had Put away for like four or
4: five years, and I rewrote the ending. And I felt I always felt that that play really worked well in the first act and the beginning of the second act, and somehow the ending never worked. But I didn't know how to do it. I didn't know I didn't know how to uh, um, finish it, um, and it didn't seem right that ending that I had it never seemed right. Um, I find that going to other works, going to other plays, writing other plays. Um, Allows me to, to get to know myself better as a, as a writer or get to know that place in my brain that writing comes from or the room to get to know another room in my brain that uh, would allow me to to approach a piece of, of work from a different angle, like Chuck you know, like was saying. Uh, so um, uh, I recently went back to this play and rewrote it and just did a reading of it uh, far from here and it feels so right. Uh, so, yes, I. I uh, with this particular um, piece, yeah, I've come back to my writing uh, a few, well, with this particular play uh, there are other works that I just feel that I consider finish and I don't want to go back to them because I have to move on. Take last question I promised you. Okay, thank you. And you came so close. You know, it's funny because every time I finish a draft, I, I used to go to the office and give the draft to the people at my card. I said, "You know what? It's not ready yet. <laughs> it's not ready yet." But again, it is like painting; it's adding layers. I'm seeing how it's operating. Uh, uh, oh, this is this is out of balance here. I I'm changing scenes around sometimes.
3: Uh, changing speech, uh, speech, uh, speeches. Uh, uh, um
4: changing the names of the characters, I do that a lot too. All of a sudden, you know, because with a name comes a face, it comes a persona, you know. And
0: then it comes to new stories, a
3: whole
4: yes. I but I never thought it was gonna be that way, and I let go, I just continue, you know. And for instance in this play that I was talking about, I um I was very much in love with, uh, with the character from this play, especially with a woman in the play. loved her very much and uh, really felt for her. And uh, it's a character that was very dear to me because I had been working with this character for a long time, and it never occurred to me to kill her. And, uh, <laughs> or if I was gonna kill her, I needed to kill her in a way. You know, and it was Shakespeare. Talk about, I fell in love with Shakespeare too like a month ago, I saw him family.
3: Without... <laughs>
4: I saw an Othello that blew me away. And it was, uh, and actually a Pericles, too. I mean, and both have deaths at the end, both tried to. Well, well, there was one that has a death, uh, with Pericles and his wife or something. But the way, there's so much redemption in the way that Pericles, with the, with the wife of Pericles. And it was so beautiful, And the way she comes back. A lot of people might, uh, nowadays might call it sentimental. I, I'm so worried about that word nowadays. But anyway, uh, there was something about uh, the way that he dealt with those characters, and I thought, wow, maybe it, it just can kill my character, Inez in a particular way, I mean, uh, just anyway, you know, she has a certain death, just like we do, you know, we don't all die the same thing, I thought maybe I'll die of my heart and she'll die with something else, you know, so it's <laughs> a particular death, huh? <laughs> What's sorry? Okay. So it's a particular death that, in dealing with, with the piece and how the character I had developed the character, and I found a way of killing her, and which seemed right. And uh, I know this is very abstract, but uh, it made sense to me. And, uh, I found her dad, finding a way of killing her.
3: And, and at first she wasn't even supposed to die. No, she was okay, never supposed to die. That was the last question. <laughs>